0: Welcome to Pull Back, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday choices. We are a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, and you can find our partner shows at harbingermedianetwork.com. I'm Kyla Hewson, and today I am here introducing an encore episode. This is one of our favorites from the past. This episode is about cultural appropriation. I was a little nervous to cover this topic at the time, but we were joined by some wonderful guests who I will introduce now. Panthea Vatindust, whose pronouns are she, her. Panthea is an actor who works in television, film, and theater, and is the founder and managing artistic director of Medusa Theatre Society. We were also joined by Burema, he, him, and Selima, she, her. Two members of the Daily Dose of Blackness podcast, a show designed to center and celebrate Black youth experiences and struggles. But just before we get into that, I want to talk directly to our listeners for a moment. Next week, Kristen and I will be putting out an episode about deforestation, and we're going to be doing a challenge for the first time in a little while. And our challenge is going to be to go without paper in a way that we haven't done before. And I wanted to share that with you all before we release the episode next week. We haven't recorded it yet because I wanted to give you an opportunity to perhaps send some suggestions our way. (laughs) You can get us on Twitter at Pullback Podcast or Instagram where I hang out. Or if you want to join in and do the challenge in advance, if you happen to hear this with enough time between now and next Tuesday, then, you know, we encourage it. And without further ado, here is our episode on cultural appropriation. I was nervous to take the lead on this episode. Uh, Kristen's usually the (laughs) the research person, but she was like, no, Kylie, you can do this one. (laughs) So in the spirit of stress, I calmed myself by way over-preparing. I listened to over 25 episodes of other podcasts talking cultural appropriation, and have already shared the best ones on Twitter, although anyone listening who wants to find those again, you can head to our research notes, and I'll link them there as well. I've made notes on discussion points from the book White Negroes, When Cornrows Were in Vogue, and Other Thoughts on Cultural Appropriation by Lauren Michelle Jackson, but I encourage interruptions, (laughs) and if we don't make it to every discussion point, or even most of them, or even any of them, that's more than welcome. I wanted to make sure we all had something to chew on, If I learned anything by binge studying this topic, (laughs) it's that cultural appropriation, like culture itself, is nuanced and sometimes hard to pin down. So this is a safe space. You are welcome to share your thoughts with the understanding that there are a ton of us here and everyone has had different life experiences, which may result in different views on the same subject. So that said, I would like to kick things off by reading two abbreviated but still long pages from Jackson's book. I was going to shorten it by paraphrasing, but honestly, every word is so good. So I'm just going to go ahead and read the whole thing. And then once we're done that, I will open the floor to, to my wonderful guests. Appropriation is everywhere and is also inevitable. Appropriation, for better and worse, cannot stop. So long as peoples interact with other peoples by choice or by force, cultures will intersect and mingle and graft onto each other. We call hip-hop a black thing, and it is, indeed, a black thing, that also emerged in neighbourhoods where black and brown people, homegrown and from the south, from the islands, melded together to produce the music of their experiences in shared poverty and community. Early rap was itself an appropriation of another generation's sound. Funk, soul, disco, repurposed for something different and new. Rap also revolutionized the lively form of appropriation known as sampling, a means of incorporating the past, the recent past, and other genres to make timeless music. The idea that any artistic or cultural practice is closed off to outsiders at any point in time is ridiculous, especially in the age of the internet. Most everyday acts of appropriation, done unconsciously, escape our notice. The word that works itself into your speech because your best friend sprinkles every other phrase with it, and where they got it from they don't even know. A new style you have grown into without thought, without a specific icon in mind, by just going with the flow of fashion. The yoga pose you sink into after wor- a workout. The way you shimmy when your favourite song comes on. If appropriation is everywhere, and everyone appropriates all the time, why does any of this matter? The answer, in a word, power. When the oppressed appropriate from the powerful, it can be very special indeed. And yet, when the powerful appropriate from the oppressed, society's imbalances are exacerbated and inequalities prolonged. In the history of problematic appropriation in America, we could start with the land and crops and cuisine commandeered from native peoples along with the mass appropriation of the labor of the enslaved. The tradition lives on. The things black people make with their hands and minds for pay and for the hell of it, are exploited by companies and individuals who offer next to nothing in return. White people are not penalized for flaunting Black culture. They are rewarded for doing so financially, artistically, socially, and intellectually. For a white person seeing, citing, and compensating Black people, however, has no such reward and may actually prove risky. According to a 2018 report by the Samuel Dubois Cook Center on Social Equity at Duke University, Black households hold less than seven cents on the dollar compared to white households. The research also found black households with a college-educated breadwinner hold less wealth than white families whose breadwinners do not have a high school diploma. White households with unemployed breadwinners have a higher net worth than black households whose breadwinners work full-time. Controlled for income, black families save at a higher rate than their white counterparts and spend less than whites. So that's the end of the quote. And obviously, this is a a book that's centered on the American experience. But I I don't think that it's too far off of um, what we might see in other Western, especially Western countries. And uh, it's focused on the black experience. But I again, I don't think it's too far off of what we might see happening to other cultures. So I was going to just kind of uh, go around one by one and ask each of you to introduce yourselves, maybe tell us something interesting or fun about you, and then let us have your opening thoughts to start us off.
1: Panthea, would you mind going first? Sure. Uh, my name is Panthea Batandus. I'm in the performing arts. I am Iranian, born and raised, I immigrated here as a teenager. And all of a sudden I can't find a single interesting thing about myself.
2: <laughs> well, we we heard in warm up that you're a big cat stan, so
1: <laughs> I am. I'm a huge cat stan. If your cat hates all human beings, that cat will love me. I am the cat whisperer.
0: (laughs) Well, we were also talking pre-show that uh, I know that your name autocorrects to Panther. And that's just the name you go by on um, some social media sites. So,
1: (laughs) Yeah, I um, actually have a a somewhat uh, funny story about that. A couple of years ago... At my restaurant at this restaurant job that I had, uh, my nickname was Panther for that exact same reason because every time people would try to text me, it would autocorrect to Panth to Panther. And uh one time someone asked me if my parents had named me Panthea because it's so close to Panther, and <laughs> it caught me so off guard because I'm Iranian and I, I was born in a different country that doesn't speak English and so the pronunciation won't even be the same and <laughs> I just thought that was the funniest thing in the world
0: <laughs> You're like, no, my parents did not do this
1: on purpose <laughs> Yes, they research in case one day we immigrate to, a, to an Anglo <laughs> country
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, what a question <laughs>
0: Any opening thoughts on uh, the subject matter or or the quote I just read?
1: Yeah, I've actually, interestingly enough, because of some recent experiences, I mean, I, I'm quite active in the film community um, as I'm a beginner activist, I guess. And something that I've come across a lot, especially over the last year and a half, is this uh, massive grouping of any and all non-white people. And so... When I was, uh, when Kyla approached me to, to participate in this episode of the podcast, ever since then, I've had this uh, kind of disclaimer running in my head, and I actually really want to say it. And the disclaimer is that basically any and all things that I share on this podcast, on this episode is strictly my views, and they don't even represent the views of all Iranian people or even all Iranian women. And I don't know why this concept has has come into effect that all non-white people have the exact same views, opinions, preferences, political uh, leanings, etc. But these are just like, I don't even represent my entire community. It's just me.
0: Oh, but Panthea, I asked you here because I thought you did represent the <laughs> entire Iranian community. So
1: All of <laughs> Middle East, North <laughs>
0: Africa, that's the me. The whole region.
1: No, no, no. Yeah. So yeah, that's the disclaimer that I kind of wanted to bring up. But I also really appreciated this reading because another thing that pops into my head is that I, as an Iranian person, I'm I'm really light-skinned, even as an Iranian. I have some, I don't know, whatever my lineage. And so the way I'm affected by any sort of... Race-based assumptions is very different than a dark-skinned Black person would. And so I really appreciated this reading right off the top because it, it brings to focus, uh, one of the groups that is so devastatingly affected by race-based assumptions, by cultural appropriation, by systemic racism.
0: Salima, did you uh, want to introduce yourself, tell us something interesting, and then let us know your thoughts on this subject?
3: Yeah, um, hi, my name is Salima. I was born in Canada, but my family's from Sudan. My family moved here in 2001. Um, for this topic, as a group, Daily Dosa of Blackness has talked about our cultural preparation a lot, and we talked about seeing culture appropriation in our school and like handling it and I think there's times where people act um, appropriate culture without even knowing it so I think it's important to have this discussion and talking about what is culture appropriation and like how to stay away from it.
0: Burema, uh, do you want to introduce yourself and uh, give us your initial thoughts here? Uh, oh and a fun fact,
4: um well hi everyone my name is barema um i am currently in my last year of high school and i am a part of the daily dose of blackness group more specifically working on our pods podcast side of things i love cats um i'm an avid cat lover cat activist for everything about <laughs> cats so i do have my own cat she is my best friend and i'll also kind of introduce daily dose of blackness and stuff. What our host said earlier about daily dose of blackness, we do also do podcasts, but we also do have a YouTube channel. We have website. We have we do have a website, which we obviously link all our content to, I and mean, we also have articles on there. Um, the articles we mostly talk about things that are just important to us, current events, things that are happening in our community or other's communities that we want to shed light on or make the public more aware of. So definitely, that's what we use our website for. We started around two and a half years ago. And since then, it was just a thought in the back of our heads to do this, but now it's become a reality. So that's, it's amazing to see, to be honest. And a fun fact about me is that I love reading. Reading is probably one of my most favorite things to do and promoting reading on others, like promoting reading on youth. That's my favorite thing. I love doing that because it's just a way to kind of escape and just like enjoy yourself for the time moment which is really relaxing and nice to see.
2: Nice. Do you have a book that you're reading right now?
4: Uh, <laughs> I'm currently reading right now The Sun is Also a Star uh, by one of my favorite authors, Nicola Yoon. She wrote Everything and Everything, so, and that's one of my favorite romance novels ever. And I will say, the book is better than the movie. Just, <laughs> 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 Just have to say that.
0: Nice. And uh, any opening thoughts on the on the reading or on the subject in general?
4: definitely the reading really opened my eyes while you were reading it I was just thinking about so many things and like definitely what Salima said about how we talked about like culture appropriation which is pre- appreciation and like it is very hard to see sometimes like sometimes it can be so school that we pass over it and don't even realize it's happening but then when we finally take like an outer view on it we're like wow like we can't believe this just happened before us and how did we not prevent it or stop this or even just Slow it down, at fact, so that's not happening at like alarming rate rates and stuff. So I really was thinking about that the whole time, and it just kept me pulling, pulling me back to think about this one incident where a dollar store was selling indigenous costumes for like Halloween for Halloween season, and like. Again, when you said in the beginning that you guys are talk about consumerism about a lot in your podcast, it was making me thinking, wow, I've consumed from that store before or that company. And it's like, wow, I'm really like, I don't support this company with my values and ideologies, but I'm supporting them. So it's like, yeah, always taking a bigger picture on things. So, yeah, those are my opening thoughts.
0: Awesome. Yeah. No, and that's yeah, that's why we wanted to cover this. But we obviously... We were like, well, it's so big. How? (laughs) So actually, uh, to talk about the kind of the difference between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation, uh, I thought that was something that was really interesting to look at. And I know you guys have done episode discussions on this before. So I was wondering if Salima or Burema, if either of you wanted to explain the difference between cultural appropriation and cultural appreciation.
4: Definitions will vary, I say, down to different people and stuff. But for me, the main differentiator is that when it's appreciation, there's genuine research behind it. And I mean, like, by genuine research, I mean, like, this person was took the time and took their effort to learn about this in a genuine way. Not because it's like, okay, I don't want to be asked if I'm appropriating or appreciating. And then when they tell me I'm appropriating, I'm going to get mad and stuff, you know?
3: I think... Like, personally, I wouldn't wear or do something that's like another person's culture because it's not my culture. I feel that's just like a general thing that everyone should do, you know? But I think it just varies on the situation, like as Brema said.
4: Uh huh. It definitely varies on the situation.
3: I think
1: context really matters mm-hmm. in this situation. I think, I think if you're in a position where, someone is questioning what you've done or what you've worn or what you've said as cultural appropriation that's already a red flag mm-hmm. <laughs> it it means that something along the way went wrong enough for what you're doing to stick out so much that someone is concerned about it
0: I lifted a, a few discussion topics from the book that I read Uh, And in chapter one of Jackson's book, it's called The Pop Star. Uh, She discusses the use of black music and dance in the teen pop star uh, who is aiming to be seen as more mature by the music industry. She specifically calls out Christina Aguilera, Britney Spears and Miley Cyrus, who all used black music and dance to distance themselves from the Disney pop machine. This works because black girls and young women are often like red as older and more mature than their white counterparts, so this gets used in music a lot. And I was just wondering if you guys had any thoughts on that.
2: There's just like a well of problems in that example you just gave. <laughs> <I'm
0: sorry>. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I wanted everyone to have sp- uh. something to work
3: with. Um, since you mentioned Miley Cyrus, I just I was thinking back about like her phase of like whatever that was. <laughs> a lot of people were saying that. Like do you know how she was like acting like different? Like it was like a way of her going away from her Disney, whatever Disney side, and like,
4: uh-huh.
3: like it's really hard to explain. But like it's basically like they would use black culture
0: to like be um, a rebel, mm-hmm. basically. I think we all picture Miley Cyrus mm-hmm. twerking at the it the music awards that she, she... And,
3: like, even, like, with twerking, like, twerking would never had, like, a negative or wasn't really, like, that sexual until, like, like Miley Cyrus did it and everyone was, like, shocked because it was, like, a white girl doing it. And, like, it became, like, seen really, really negative.
4: It became stigmatized.
3: Yeah. And I'm still trying to pull apart
2: like the the sexism and stuff that's coming out and then the racism layered on top of it. Oh, Hollywood's so broken.
1: (laughs) There's so much in there because what does it say about, I don't know, like North American society's view on black culture if a white girl (laughs) using the music or dance means that she's too dangerous and like
3: too sexual
1: Mm -hmm. or too inappropriate. Like there is so much negative connotation attached to it for it to actually work in the way that it, that it did. And that's the problem. It's just so sad.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That one's a bit of a bummer. (laughs) Uh, Let's uh, let's head over to chapter two, The Cover Girl, where Jackson writes extensively on how fashion is strongly influenced by black culture, but almost never attributed to it. A quote Mm -hmm. from the book reads, An August 2017 article in British GQ credited Harry Styles with bringing thick, ostentatious men's rings into fashion, like men of color on the street haven't decorated their hands that way for decades. She points to the famous monologue from Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada, where Miranda Priestly takes Anne Hathaway's character down a peg by pointing out she exists in this world of fashion where, whether she likes it or not, all of the choices come from the top. But what the movie leaves out is all the theft those at the top do to those at the bottom in order to come up with those fashions in the first place. And uh, I hope... I Now I'm realizing... um Salima and Barima might be so young that you've never seen The Devil Wears Prada. <laughs> I'm sorry. No. no.
1: This is amazing. I am... I, I have to say, I am so happy to be in this room with you two. This is wonderful. <laughs>
0: I hope I hope the uh, the idea got through. <laughs> and I was wondering if anyone had any thoughts on that.
4: The first thing that came to mind when you were reading that was the the article of Harry in and British GQ because it just brought up in my mind how this past two years you could say like kind of like a fashion renaissance and like the terms of toxic masculinity and the way men should be dressing and things really like it really took off this year, and you could could, could kind of stay from like a pop culture stance that Harry Styles really initiated this, and like it's honest to see because in terms he was like being praised for wearing a dress and like breaking those norms, but just it reminded me back of a, a while back I want to say two thousand thirteen to two thousand fourteen, Young Thug for his album cover was wearing a dress, and like it just turned into this big thing of people bashing him about oh this is too feminine this is like it's not acceptable and definitely for him being a black man and stuff like homosexuality and the black community and just everything to do with the queer community is so it's an ongoing issue It was, this was really sad to see you know sad to see like not even from the black community but just overall the internet community and you can say people were just bashing him for doing this and like fast forward now a couple years later you can't say that oh progression in these few years have changed but can you really say that and it's like in terms it's because a black man did something but now a white man is making me popular so yeah
3: there's so many um fashion icons and artists that are also fashion icons that are black men and they've done everything that Harry Styles had done in even more, but doesn't have, they don't have like the same feedback from it, like the same recognition. And even like ASAP Rocky, he was like one of the first men to like cover for one of this magazine. I forgot what it was. And not just like a black man, he, like he was just like a fir- the first man in general. And that was like a big thing, but a lot of people don't know about it.
1: As you were doing the reading The thing that popped into my head is uh, I think it was about a week ago. uh, Billy Porter actually uh, slammed the the Vogue, the American Vogue uh, magazine, for having Harry Styles be the first man to be on the cover alone, and uh, he's wearing a dress. And in the spread, like in the in the photos in the inside of the magazine, allegedly he's also wearing like a series of dresses. And uh, Billy Porter has like slammed it, saying that it, it, him as a Black gay man wearing gender-fluid uh, clothing for many years now, uh, he has never been offered. And so the this type of opportunities afforded to Harry Styles and someone like Billy Porter are completely different. But even as I'm saying it out loud, then the, there's a question of, yes, Harry Styles is arguably a global phenomenon. Whereas Billy Porter is not.
0: That's where the power imbalance comes in though, isn't it?
1: Exactly. The fact that uh, as soon as Harry Styles started wearing more gender fluid clothing, all of a sudden his status went up even more. Mm -hmm. Whereas when a non-white person does it, suddenly they're not marketable and they're confusing and they're Pushing their agenda on the general public, etc. Add in whatever negative review you can think of.
2: Wasn't there? There was this. Yes, <laughs> I, I was like, who? Was who, was was who was Fox News mad at this summer? I can't
4: remember. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, so funny because when you were just saying that, Pentay, I was literally just thinking of him. I was like, wow, So great mind think alike. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Final thoughts
4: on this subject? Um, I guess so we brought it up. Um so funny how we were both thinking of Lil Nas X and like in my mind I was just thinking about okay, Panthea just said all these great points, but it's like now there's someone actually like defying these points. Like wow, Lil Nas X is like kind of you could say now, an icon for breaking these toxic masculinity molds and just like living his true life as a queer black man so it's like wow someone's really doing it but at the same time in my head uh, I'm like but why what shifted like what's changed like it's because maybe the world knows it's finally time to give black creators their credit but is it just like is it just like a one-time thing like I don't know it's just in the back of my mind it's amazing that he's being able to do this but just what took them so long (laughs) That's kind of my question.
2: He also already had to put up with that bullshit about like whether his songs counted as country songs or not. Oh, yeah. uh, Yeah. yeah. Uh
0: I forgot about that. But yeah, I guess I don't know when it comes to that. What upsets me the most is just how like shocking it is to see because nobody else is able to do it. So Mm -hmm. it's just like, oh, look at look at him breaking the mold. And it's like, well, there's lots of people over the years who would have broken the mold if only they've been allowed. Yeah, Totally.
4: And it's just funny to me, like my, sorry, my last point, it's just like funny how it's a shocker why he's doing it now and stuff. And definitely like by mean shocker, like to the black community, how like someone's doing this, but like, if you think about it, blackness is inherently queer. Like there have always been, there will always be, and there are black queer people. And like trying to like detach the black queer experience from the black experience is valid. And like, I do understand that, but like, we need to use this and unify the term blackness by not taking any other piece of identity and just putting it in its own box when we just generally are fighting the same battle. So yeah, that's my thing on that.
0: Mm -hmm. In chapter five, the meme, Jackson uh, writes about digital blackface, the practice where racists and misogynists use generic photos to present as who they are not, often women of color, to create disagreement among activists. The goal is to make causes look flimsy or extreme to quote-unquote allies on the border of movements who are inclined to believe hoaxes that they wish were true. If a cause is written off as ridiculous, then they don't have to do the hard work of supporting it or advocating for change. So, uh, as youths... (laughs) uh, said like an old man in a stoopside rocking chair. Uh, is this something that you guys would like to speak to? I presume that everyone plugs straight into the internet via IV, while Kristen and I still access it via our dusty AOL <laughs> dialogue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have you noticed, um, is, th- is this like an issue that's been on your radar? Is, is, is people presenting online as who they are not?
4: Definitely. I feel like when you're talking about that, I feel like the term, like, when I'm talking about it to my friends, or what I call it is blackfishing. So definitely something I've been keeping my eye on and, like, I've seen recently. I feel like around three years ago, that's when, like, it really took off, when a lady from Amsterdam was supposed to be signed to this huge modeling agency, but, like, pictures of her, like, recently got out that she's a white woman and she, she fully on looked black. Like, it was the her trying to embrace a persona as a Black woman and live like a Black woman and, like, kind of show the public, like, oh, she's following all these Black cultures and stuff like that, and, like, including, like, deepening her skin to look, like, to make it as authentic as possible.
3: Yeah, and, like, it's always been a thing where Black people get bashed for um, using, like, skin lightening products and bleaching their skin, which is, like, a terrible thing, but um skin tanning isn't. And like people are just saying like the double standards of that. Uh
0: It's almost as though people want the style of cultures that are not their own, Latin culture or Black culture, but they don't want any of the responsibility that comes with that. So it's really easy to present as this stylish person online, but then you step out the door and you don't have all the same problems.
1: There is kind of a lot swirling around in my head about that. I guess in a in a in a really dark way, it's really fascinating to me how there are so many people in the white communities in North America specifically, but I suppose in Europe as well, who for some reason don't find their own culture. I don't know, interesting enough or or whatever it is, it's like. This person will put on the skin and the look and there are even like now there are chapsticks that you can put on that like they have an ingredient in it that will um, make your lips swell up and be more plump. It's like you will do all these things to make your eyebrows look thicker, make your hair look thicker, longer or curlier or whatever, um, have more curves, be darker skinned, uh, speak in a specific intonation, listen to specific music, dance in a specific way. It's all okay when it's you doing it, but it, when it's that person from that culture themselves, they're not acceptable and they're too much and they're, they're unwelcome. Like the disconnect is that you will go so far as to, literally put on this human suit of another culture but that person who already exists in it is not welcome or accepted that disconnect is is kind of where all of my thought goes of it's almost as if they don't see the value in the human being they just see the value in the aesthetics and so they extract what they perceive as the valuable part and leave the rest behind and then, like, repurpose it and resell it back to that same culture. like look at what's happened to the yoga industry.
2: No, I kind of think about it in the same way as like um a lot of prominent Nazis were also super fascinated with indigenous culture, and I think it's kind of the same in the same kind of vein where it's you're not actually looking beneath the surface and appreciating the underlying culture. It's like you're looking at the culture as a mystique and a costume.
1: To, to go to, um, sort of what Kyla was mentioning about, like, I guess white folks using the photo of a random non-white person to pretend to be that person. But I think that really just goes back to, I guess, this idea that they must have that, like, for example, in this case, because we're talking about digital blackface, like, they think that all black people think the same. And so, like, you're gonna stick out if you're that one, Black presenting person who doesn't agree with their political opinions? Like, are you assuming that they don't have these discussions and disagreements within their own families and their own friends groups and their own communities? That, like, it's just so bizarre to me. And to me, it comes across as their target really would be other white people because groups, like, people are grouped together. It's like, oh, well. This black person said it's on Twitter said it's cultural appropriation if I do this. But then this other black person said it's not. So which one's the easier way? I think I, th- that's like if I really, I guess, sit here and dissect it, that's what it comes down to to me. It's like even the, the whole thing of digital blackface for me, like even the, the intended audience to me seems like other white folks on the Internet.
0: Yeah, it totally yeah. is.
2: Yeah, I think it also it also to me seems somewhat similar to um people that will pretend to be like Antifa or whatever on the internet to make the the cause look ridiculous. Seems like it's a tactic in that same kind of vein but with um other layers added onto it.
0: Okay, so then to move on, another discussion point that I've brought from uh, Jackson's book in Chapter 7, The Chef, Jackson discusses cultural appropriation in the food industry, which is summed up beautifully in this quote. Hello, Editing Kyla here. I bungled this quote, so I'm going to go ahead and read it again. At McSweeney's, the novelist Rajiv Balasubramanayam offered a numbered to-do list for appropriation non-believers. 1. Your new friends Bob and Rita come to lunch and you serve them idlis, like your grandmother used to make. 2. They love your South Indian cooking and ask for the recipe. 3. You never hear from Rita and Bob again. 4. You read in the style section of The Guardian about Rita and Bob's new idli bar in Covent Garden, called Idli. 5. You visit Idli, the food tastes nothing like your grandmother's. 6 your grandmother dies. 7. Rita and Bob's children inherit the Idli chain and open several franchises in America. 8. Your children find work as short-order chefs at Idli. 9. Your children visit you in a nursing home and cook you Idlis, which taste nothing like the ones you remember from your youth. 10. You compliment their cooking and ask for the recipe. 11. You die that's the end of the quote any uh any initial thoughts
4: on that the beginning of it when you're talking about culture appropriation and appreciation in food i just kept thinking about veganism and how veganism has has been taken over and the mastermind behind it was the, uh, the young white man, millennial who just got out of college and is finding themselves that's what veganism looks like to some people and it's so funny how we've kind of like Whitewash veganism when you can say a majority of South Asian cuisine cuisine is vegan, and a lot of dishes in like Central Africa, Western Africa, all of these dishes are vegan that people are cooking. But now it's like, oh, when a person of a different race or ethnicity tries to do it, it's like, okay, this is them emulating a new way of being white when necessarily it's not, and it's someone just living their authentic selves and enjoying their culture. So that's what brought it back to me.
2: Yeah, for sure. A lot of uh, vegan restaurants I've been to lean heavily on, you know, South Asian, Southeast Asian cuisines, um, and very rarely are those the owners <laughs> of the
1: restaurant. <laughs> yeah. The the image that keeps popping in my head when, when reading this is thinking about the different restaurants and the restaurants that are really popular and frequented that serve, quote unquote, ethnic food versus the mom and pop restaurants in the neighborhood that are barely getting any visitors. So like we're talking about the vegan industry, look at all the white owned, white run vegan restaurants that are serving all the curry. And then the actual restaurants with the recipes that are delicious and so flavorful and amazing and also vegan or vegetarian are kind of dying because they don't aesthetically look, I don't know, Instagram ready or whatever it is. Like they're not packaged in that specific way. So again, like it comes to like, for me, it comes down to market- marketability. Like it, 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 it is all of it. But like the more we're talking about different aspects of cultural appropriation, the more it, it looks like the ultimate consumerist act to just kind of leech off whatever you can package and sell back to the public and leave the rest behind to kind of fend for itself.
0: Yeah, no, that's a really good point. I actually have a little bit more on on the the food topic. So I'll read that out. And then if anyone has any thoughts that are prompted by this, Uh, it's a little bit different it's from an episode of a podcast i was listening to the dave chang show in the episode msg korean food and cultural appropriation the hosts discuss this issue and a really interesting point they make is that so many folks from families who have immigrated are ostracized for the food that they prepare which especially affects kids attending school it's hard enough to fit in without some kid next to you making fun of your kimchi Uh, So shame is being tied to a part of culture that should be celebrated, which is obviously delicious food. So imagine the sting when white people start to print these recipes in cookbooks, present them on cooking shows or open restaurants specializing in the cuisine others have mocked, and then they are celebrated for it. The issue isn't that white folks shouldn't be allowed to cook food from other cultures necessarily, but that the wealth gap that we mentioned earlier in this episode and institutional racism mean that those same like opportunities of opening a restaurant or hosting a cooking show or creating a best-selling cookbook aren't available to folks who are probably better at representing their own cultures jackson explores the history of this further in chapter eight the entrepreneur uh, where she paints a picture of modern America built on actively stopping Black communities from accumulating wealth, often violently, but also bureaucratically through things like redlining. Uh, if anyone isn't sure what redlining is and you want to learn more, we have pinned a video on our Instagram page so you can go to at podcast to learn about that. But while this book focuses on the Black experiences, There are examples enough of this happening to Asian and indigenous communities as well, and is by no means an American-exclusive historical experience of, like, white people literally stealing the wealth from underneath the feet of other cultures. So, and all of this was happening during the only period of time in our system of capitalism when you could actually grow wealth in your family and community. Now everyone who didn't get rich before the dot-com boom or isn't born into wealth is hooped. So...
4: The beginning of that really hit home to me, and it's like, and no, I really felt personally connected to that because with the bringing of ethnic foods to for school for a lunch when I was a kid, it was like I didn't see it as something to be ashamed of, I didn't see it as something that was wrong. But, like, by my peers and like fellow classmates, it was like, wow, it was like it was out of the norm, and like, and it looked And it was like unacceptable to them. And I was like, "Why aren't you just bringing a juice box and a lunchable to school?" Well, it's like, no, my parents are immigrants, and we can't afford that. It kind of instilled this shame in me, and it's like, okay, like my food's not acceptable. Like, and it was me like lashing out, saying, "Oh, I don't want this anymore. I just want a plain chicken and cheese sandwich. That's it." And it's like now I'm looking back at it, and I'm like, I'm kind of forgetting those days, like. I've loved to have more ethnic dishes for food. um my mom loved cooking and packing them for me, and like kind of like letting those outer forces get into me and stuff is kind of a bummer, but at the same time, it's made me learn, and I'm kind of grateful that happened to me.
3: The one thing that like stood out to me was when you talked about how like people taking like the Korean dishes and like making cookbooks and like opening restaurants when it's like not their culture and stuff like that. Um, That just reminded me how, like, recently, like, when COVID first started happening, there was a lot of Asian hate and, like, a lot of Asian crimes and stuff like that. But then now, like, especially on TikTok, there's a lot of, like, things that are trendy, that are Asian-related, like, K-dramas and, like, the food. And then I know, like, the Asian community are like, oh, you guys were just hurting us, like, a couple months ago. Like, like, it's kind of like the switch up was just, like, really fast and, like, odd
1: to them salima um uh i'm glad you brought up the the concept of like how like dramas and and asian culture is all of a sudden like the trend and i think it uh, honestly has a lot to do with k-pop uh, some of which i personally enjoy
0: <laughs> who
1: doesn't
3: yeah, i'm not gonna lie i'm a huge, I'm a huge k-pop fan
1: listen BTS has a has a special place in my heart.
3: (laughs) (laughs) This is really really off topic, but I need to know your BTS bias.
1: (laughs) Okay. I have like three for different reasons. Okay, that's acceptable. That's acceptable. Okay. So RM is my main bias because well basically I just wanna like I aspire to be a leader like him. Especially yeah. in my work, J.K. is my bias record because first of all, gorgeous. Second of all, the m- hardest working person ever. Mm-hmm. And then V because his voice is just unhuman. I don't understand how someone can have such gorgeous voice.
3: That's so funny because those three are like my top three. But <laughs> but v is, my, v is my number one. He's like my alt. And then is Namjoon which is RM, and then his J.K. Yeah, so we're twins.
1: I love it. I love this so much. (laughs)
3: Um, But
1: what it it brings to my mind is a discussion I recently had with a very dear friend of mine, specifically because of BTS. There is someone in Europe, a white person. I don't know their name. I don't particularly want to know much about them. I hope they have a happy life um, doing whatever they're doing. But they are... Basically a super fan of Jimin, which is one of the members of BTS, uh, incredibly beautiful, incredibly talented, phenomenal dancer, singer. They are a fan to the point where they have done hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of classic surgery to try to look exactly like him. They're learning Korean and they're basically trying to live life as Jimin. And they now identify as a transracial person because they identify as Korean and not white. Oh boy. <laughs> this, is the, this is the thing, like you will be able to find it all over social media. And I was having the discussion with my friend about how I think that that's inappropriate and they think that it's just appreciation. And so the, com- the conversation basically led to, again, to context and this is what I, I, I'm interested in hearing everyone else's thoughts on this. Having lived essentially half of my life in, in Iran and then half of it here, there's this very interesting thing where I guess if if I were back home and I saw like a pop star or a famous person or a celebrity doing something or wearing something that is inherently Persian, Like, would I appreciate it and think that's really cool that like my culture and my style is now popular in the U.S. or whatever. But because I live here and, you know, uh, as a community, like we have faced a lot of racism, Islamophobia, acts of hate um, and having to work so hard to assimilate. And, you know, a lot of Iranians can very easily pass as white but now when it happens within this context it would be within the context of north america it would be cultural appropriation because because the people whose culture it is aren't allowed to live their culture in peace my friend that i was having this discussion with she's from hong kong and she was giving an example about how someone from I guess Hong Kong or from East Asia would appreciate North Americans enjoying their music, enjoying their food, enjoying their fashion, et cetera. But when you bring it over here, where over the last year and a half, people have literally been killed for being Asian, and now all of a sudden, Their culture is the coolest thing. You have to have all the Korean cookbooks. You have to start learning how to speak Korean. You have to know all of the BTS members' names, like because it's the trend and everybody's doing the dance moves, etc. Like that's the the difference between like which part of like where do you live? Does it make a difference in whether or not you see it as cultural appropriation?
2: Yeah, I suppose that's that's an interesting question. I guess now that we know that most, maybe all of our guests are K-pop fans. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how do you make sure that being a K-pop fan is uh, appreciation, not appropriation?
4: <laughs> I know Penthea just called my name. And yes, I am a K-pop stan, but <laughs> BTS isn't my main group that I listen to. I am a Blink.
3: <gasps> I know I'm not. a baby Blink.
1: <laughs>
4: oh, don't worry. Yeah. We take you in. Yeah.
3: <laughs> I'm, I'm brand new. I think trying to switch your whole identity and like, even I think I know what guy you're talking about. Is his name ollie London or something?
1: Quite possibly. I honestly don't know.
3: He's been known for a while, and like, he got like eye surgery to like make his eyes look have like the almond, even though like not every Asian person has that type of eye shape. And like, I think it's I think it's not cultural appreciation. It's just weird. It's <laughs> it really is very weird. It's like the ultimate appropriation. Like, I don't know. just really weird.
4: Yeah, just talking about Somi's point, like I try identifying as transracial, it's like at the same point, it's like, who are we to say not what he is? But also like for me, the way I'm just looking at it is that the main thing about culture appropriation and appropriation isn't that I just I don't want you to enjoy my culture or partake in my culture. It's just that I don't know for me and like I don't know if there are other people out there like this, but just I don't wanna inspire or like show in some way or to some extent that you don't have to enjoy the culture you are in or what you identify as. Like I just I don't want that because like just all cultures are beautiful and we should just like all enjoy ourselves. Like not because I don't want you to just have some African food like no it's not that but
3: yeah like eating eating other cultures food and like listening to like different languages of music is normal trying to change your whole identity is Mm -hmm. not
4: so yeah what Salima said is basically just my point like it just comes to a certain line or an extent where it's kind of unacceptable
1: I really liked what you said about it's not about not wanting other people to participate in our culture at all. I I, I really agree with that. I think that's where context really comes in. I mean, um, with my close friends, like sometimes I'm shoving Persian music <laughs> in their ears. <laughs> like I'm obsessed with this singer. You have no idea what's going on in this song, but you will re- listen to it on repeat. Like, um, <laughs> and that's with my close friends. Like, I mean, again not to speak for everyone but for me and for my relatives really like we are very like we are a sharing community we want to share we want to like show off our food and our um our dance and our music and and our styles but again like context matters are you being respectful are you do you understand what it is that you're doing because there are certain things that are I think, off limits um, when it comes to participating in other cultures. And so are you aware of whether or not you are stepping over that line? Are you doing it because you think it's a gimmick and it's funny? Or are you doing it because you actually enjoy it? And are you also respecting the people from that culture fully while they are participating in their own culture? Like if you see someone wearing a sari or you're interacting with someone wearing a sari, are you respectful towards them? Or are you looking down on them? But when you wear a sari, it's really cool and hip or whatever. For me, I think that's that's what it really boils down to, is context, respect, and basically knowing our boundaries and staying within them.
0: It's like that Im- implied consent as well. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, that, um, I think, Barima earlier in the episode, you were talking about that dollar costumes that were selling, like Indigenous um, like headdresses and stuff probably Indigenous communities are not making the profit from that. And um, I think I actually saw that same story that you did and they were like actively <laughs> protesting it. So it's like no consent has been given. There's no permission. And it's very, it's just, it's disrespectful. And it's like obviously disrespectful. But then the company turns around and says, no, we're honoring, this is the intent. And it's like, it's not, it's not about intent. It's about how you've, made other people feel and whether or not you're being respectful
2: building off of that um it makes me think about how like you can have these individual ethics where you're making sure that you're actually appreciating respectfully and um that you have or coming from a place of like wanting to legitimately engage but i wonder if anybody has any thoughts about like when you were reading your food quote i was thinking about the bon appetit issue that happened um last summer where there's uh information that came out that basically Bon Appetit was really underpaying um bipoc yeah, we're not paying at all um bipoc content creators um and in many cases they were providing the tools for white presenters who then got paid for the cuisine that these bipoc creators were um were making. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on how to sort of engage those kinds of issues as a as a consumer uh, <laughs> I don't know. It seems a lot trickier.
4: I will say when you said how to combat these consumerism issues and like definitely things of like, and I think Panthea brought it up too, like with participating in things that are of other cultures and like showing that appreciation is that, you know, when it comes to like larger corporations, like, you know, the mainstream supermarkets, like instead of getting our, you know, our worldly goods from there, let's try... um a local Asian superstore across the street, you know, let's try a local Pakistani butcher shop, like, you know, let's try those, because, like, again, those are directly going to the people.
2: Great. I love any advice that um, is to to shop for more food. (laughs) (laughs) Shop for more food in more places. (laughs)
1: I'm not familiar with the dollar store indigenous costume story, but I don't need to be familiar with this specific story to be familiar with the story. Like the story has been around forever. And just to circle back to the idea of respect, all you have to do is, I mean, every single person really is walking around with a smartphone or a digital device that connects to the internet. Just Google the history or the inform- any information about indigenous headdresses or those costumes that you're going to buy at the dollar store. There is a certain level of respect. There is a certain level of importance that is attached to that garb. Not everybody gets to wear that. And there is, there is reason for that. And why someone would think it's okay to do that, I am not sure. But when it comes to sort of voting with our dollars, I think that we just we just have to be willing to do some work to spend some time and it is difficult and it is challenging and it can be frustrating. And I think it's important for us to like, I don't know, give show ourselves a lot of grace, but also hold ourselves to account when we can, like to, to not just be like oh well I don't know and I'm going to continue to willfully not know so that I don't have to change anything at this stage in our lives with the amount of information out there and how unbelievably easily accessible it is there is really not much excuse for not knowing that what you did was wrong
4: I'm probably just gonna add on to what she was saying but like really stressing enough like putting yourselves in these, like, uncomfortable situations and talking about it, because, like, the problem that kind of makes me the most upset is that when engaging with a person, you know, who hasn't, like, more specifically white people who haven't really, like,
2: <laughs> yeah. had those con-
4: hard <laughs> conversations about race and, like, privilege and things like that, it's, like, now I'm starting to feel uncomfortable because you're uncomfortable. And it's, like, uh, now I'm gonna probably double back in what I originally wanted to say because I don't want you to like you know feel some type of way and at the same time it's like why why can't they not Mm -hmm. feel some type of way because like they need to like to really like understand what I'm trying to grasp at or get at it's an ongoing battle so that's why like really what you were saying Panthea like encouraging them to talk to a close group of friends like do some research on google and stuff and like if you're not sure come ask me but you know, in a polite and respectful way. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. The book, So You Want to Talk About Race by um, Ijeoma Oluo, um, I found personally very helpful in in terms of, you know, how to, as a a white person, engage in these conversations and to be comfortable with, you know, being uncomfortable.
0: Uh, I work for a school district and they have been making, well, not making, they've been uh allowing the staff members to do a lot of like anti-racist training and taking a lot of um webinars. Plus, mm. of course, Panthea and I have been working together on this um artists conference that we were working on that had a lot of these workshops as well. Mm. And I think the number one thing that they all had in common was just explaining about how to apologize when you're wrong, which is not... By stating your intention, like the company selling indigenous headdresses for Halloween, where they're like, mm, well, we don't intend to be racist. We intend to be respectful. Like, that's not the point. That's not an apology. It's an excuse that pushes the fault back onto the person who's trying to help you. So mm-hmm. like the number one thing that, that I've learned recently, anyways, is like to apologize by recognizing the impact, thanking mm. the person for respecting you enough to call you out, and then promising to do better in the future.
4: Yeah, just like when you were talking, I was just thinking about how this past year, definitely with like the things that happened last year during the pandemic and the USA with George Floyd and things like that, it just like it made me think of a term called gaslighting, which I recently only came to know of like this past year and stuff from what was going on and things. And it was like just bringing me back to where when people do apologize, like how you were describing, it's a form of gaslighting. It's like saying, oh, I didn't mean to offend you by calling you a racist term, but I am sorry you took offense to that. Yes. <laughs>
2: yeah. Oh, yes.
4: Like, looking back, like, that's how I've had so many apologies when things have been done wrong to me and things. And, like, before, I would say I wasn't aware of it, so I couldn't, like, act now. But now I'm really, like, really pushing that to get rid of that form of an apology and really, like, making it genuine in things. Because, like, gaslighting is not only harmful to you, but... It's really, it's a really degrading thing that can happen. And like really ending that is something I'm really trying to do.
1: Yes. The non-apology, apology, apology, the, I'm sorry you feel that way, but I'm not sorry for what I did. (laughs) Uh Apology.
0: I think the last sort of thought that I want to leave this discussion on Uh, it's just the, the one of, again, this came up from like a lot of the workshops that I've been doing recently. Um, and it's about cultural humility, Mm. which is the act of hearing and appreciating the truth of people who are different from like from different cultures or racial backgrounds. It requires making a conscious effort to learn about the values and norms upon which cultural practices you don't understand are based when something isn't understood, it can be seen as meaningless at best and offensive at worst and all it takes as panthea and selima um and berema have like all pointed out is like literally a tiny bit of research mm-hmm. <laughs> just google it once
1: <laughs> sorry if i may just briefly interject here i do want to just say that that's not like this isn't just something that's for white folks to do It's for for me as well i just because i'm not white doesn't mean that i know any and all things about any and all races that are not white Um, and all cultures and all practices. Like I am still actively learning. I'm learning about the indigenous community near me in Canada, about the history. I'm learning about the black experience in Canada. Um, I'm learning about the East Asian experience. Like these are all like knowing basically it's okay to not know but it's not okay to not do anything about it. <laughs> it's okay to, to like recognize that I do not know this, but then that's just the starting point. What do I do about it? I go do some research.
0: I love that. And there's going to be so many resources on our website, but also the Daily Dose of Blackness website is fantastic. And you guys are running a great podcast. So if anyone wants to learn more, they can head there. I also just wanted to say that the Daily Dose of Blackness and the Medusa Theater Society logos are rad. And Kristen and I know a little bit about good logos. <laughs> <laughs> of you, Selima yes. Rurima, did either of you do the logo for, for Daily Dose of Blackness?
3: Um no. Um one of the members in our team, she's like a really good artist and she does um animated art and she did it herself.
0: That's awesome. Yeah it's it's a cup of coffee spilling over and the name of the the production just coming out of the liquid and it's it's fantastic. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Panthea's Medusa Theatre Company is just, it's a, just a fabulous drawing of Medusa, isn't it?
1: Yes, um, I will plug um, the person who designed that entire thing from scratch is uh, Lisa Diergel. Um And I am forever grateful that uh, she created that piece of magical art for my company.
0: Fantastic. So if anyone wants to learn more about uh, the Medusa Theatre Society or Daily Dose of Blackness, they're they linked literally in the episode that you're listening to you can just pop down there and click uh did anyone have anything else they wanted to plug
4: um you guys thank you so much for facilitating this conversation um (laughs) it was this is amazing and thank you so much for having us and like i just want to say it was a pleasure meeting you panthea and like i really want to talk more with you. you seem like an amazing person
1: Oh my gosh, you're such a sweetheart. Uh, It was an absolute pleasure to be here. Um, And I'm so, so happy that uh, Kyla brought you and Salima um, into this podcast because now I've met you and Salima and I've also followed Daily Dose of Blackness on Instagram and all the listeners should also do it. Your graphics are awesome. I would love to continue having conversations with you. Um, Kyla has mentioned it a couple of times already, but you, uh, there is like empathy and kindness just oozing out of you. It's, it's amazing. Really, Thank it's you. really heartwarming. <laughs>
0: we only invite amazing people. Oh. Uh, actually, we do do an end of year quiz. So if anybody wants to be on our end of year quiz show, you are invited. <laughs> <Yeah>. Amazing. <laughs> Um, And Salima, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to meet you.
3: Thank you for having us. It was really a nice opportunity.
0: Yeah, you guys are uh, just fantastic. I love it. Uh, If anyone wants to follow them, I'll link to it. And then, of course, you can follow us at Pullback Podcast. But uh, that's it for today. Thank you for listening.